Welcome to Project Update, a podcast about the projects we're working on and throwing out. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going this week, Joe? Pretty good. You know, I realized something today about the podcast. Um, I was redoing the little notes template that we use. And I think we went from a weekly podcast to a bi-weekly podcast or every other week podcast about a year ago, but we never changed the intro. So for about <laughs> the last year, we've been saying a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on. <laughs> I didn't realize it at all until I saw the note. Yeah. We, we were both just dutifully reading the script. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> so I have been... I got a lot to say on FM perception, but before we dive into that, I figured mm -hmm. I would talk about my hobby project, the WebXR stuff. Please. So I am, I am learning all kinds of useless information. Um, I'm not really any closer to figuring out what I want to be working in, but I, I have kind of gone back and forth, generally speaking, between a combination of A-Frame and 3JS and on one side and Babylon JS on the other side. And it's probably like, as I start consulting in these technologies, I'll probably just use both depending on what the project requires. But trying to find which one of these is the best fit for the weird type of stuff I'm doing is a bit trickier at this point because no one else is really doing the weird stuff that I'm doing. Most people are building VR stuff to be able to interact with real world type of things or make games or you know, 360 video viewer or a social hangout space. And I just want to load a bunch of data from a database in my face, which is a weird thing to want to do. <laughs> so I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I was mostly working on A-Frame and that was true right up until about Saturday morning this past weekend. Um, I, I made a, a bunch of scenes. I got some basic physics interaction working. I got some hand controller interaction stuff working. And basically, A-Frame is really good for very simple things. But like A-Frame itself is built on 3JS. And both of them, like 3JS is a 3D rendering type of framework. You can create 3D objects here. You can do some really cool stuff with shaders. Um, it's all about creating 3D content, whereas Babylon.js is more about taking existing 3D content and applying logic on it to do stuff with. So the stuff I was finding in, in A-Frame in particular is there's very little actually built in A-Frame. And then almost everything that I need to do has to be completely custom built or use a component from the community. Many of these components are, they were developed in a frenzy of excitement at the beginning of A-Frame and haven't been touched since. Um, so I'm not crazy about that. And a lot of them are built with, I don't know if there's a name for this. Somebody probably knows the name for this, but there is a tendency, particularly in the web world, to go to extremes abstracting stuff. Um, so there is, I'm not going to mention it by name, but there's one of these components that I was trying to use. 
and it has controller input so completely abstracted that the developer no longer knows how it gets which controller from the browser. It just, <laughs> they, they don't even know how to do it anymore. It, it somehow kind of works. Yeah, allegedly, but we have no way of confirming that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I was kind of over the course of the last couple of weeks, just like, tons of little paper cuts about a frame of like, okay, now I need to do this thing. Like it should just be, you know, a property that I can, like a Boolean I can flip on this component. And nope, it's, it's wired up in code, but it's not accessible via the schema properties for the components. So you can't actually change it without downloading the entire component and compiling it yourself. Like just that kind of stuff is running into that over and over again. So I decided to go back and take another look at Babylon JS. And if you'll remember the the wall I hit with Babylon JS was text rendering. Um, just the the tools I was using, the advanced texture, advanced dynamic texture system and the GUI system I was using were just not performant in VR. They were great in the browser as overlays, but when you start making world space things and go into VR, um, they just weren't working very well. So I started looking at like dumber ways of doing that. And so I guess the, the advanced dynamic texture system is basically a, a way of applying literally a dynamic texture on a 3D object. So a texture being basically an image that you're going to wrap around the faces of a 3D object. And this works, the, the dynamic texture the non-advanced one, basically you can put anything in it that you can put in an HTML canvas element. So you can render SVG content to it. You could do bitmap text, you could do images, just all, anything you can put there, um, you can put in one of those objects. I don't think you can actually do another WebGL scene there, but that would, <laughs> that would be fascinating because you know we're doing all this Babylon's JS stuff on a canvas already. So can we do more canvases inside the canvases? And no, I don't. That already breaks my head, but the advanced version of that is basically applies an entire, almost like a, a lightweight document system for doing multiple elements in one of those. Whereas the simple, simple one is just like, you can throw some text in here or you can throw an image in here and that's about it. It's really for rendering very simple stuff. Um, I was trying to use the more complicated one for simple objects or for the the framework of simple objects. But what I think I need to do is use the simple version for the 3D objects that are in my scene, things that are gonna have be represented as a 3D model with maybe a little title text and some subtitle text. Um, I should use the dynamic texture for those. And then if I want more interactive detailed stuff, then I can flip over to the advanced texture system and get some interactivity. Um, that's the type of stuff that I would do more like a, <laughs> there's you know a scene full of 50 objects rendered as 3D objects with dynamic textures, but I click one of them or pick one of them up and a detail component shows with the advanced texture stuff. Um, so I think that's kind of what I'm approaching. So I, I did some testing this weekend, uh, just getting lots of objects in, into a scene. And for the most part, 
I think this approach is going to work. There's still some stuff I have to figure out, but I was able to throw a whole bunch of these objects in a scene and test it in VR without dropping the frame rates. And interestingly, the, the performance does dip a little bit, but I think that's actually because of the way that I'm creating these temporary objects. Um, I'm essentially doing ad hoc creation of geometry for each instance of these things, even though you know all 50 objects are using the same underlying piece of geometry. So I could just create that once and then instance it multiple times. I just haven't actually done that part yet. So yeah, um, I, d I definitely feel like a anyone who's ever had a cat knows what it's like when the cat wants to go inside and outside at the same time. And I have, I only have two feet, but both of them are in 3JS and Babylon.js at the same time. And I have no idea where I'm going. So yeah, it's confusing. But I guess we'll see in two weeks what I'm working in. The other thing I wanted to touch on with my WebXR project is something we talked about, I talked to Dave about over some golf. Um, doing, dealing with value lists. So a lot of the data that I'm doing or manipulating is basically just changing values in value list type fields. And some of that is just moving them from one region to another and say, okay, you're no longer in this category over here. Now you're in this category. I just drag you across the room to change categories and can fire off at events that post that change to the database. The more complicated version of this would be, you know, in FileMaker terms, like a picker window. So think you, you've got a, a situation where you don't just want a value list, like a drop-down list on a field. You need a more advanced picker where you can maybe do some searching or add multiple items at once or be able to look at multiple columns of data at the same time. So I'm thinking about building, and I've actually done some of the basics of this already, but building secondary picker scenes. So say I'm in my main scene that I'm adding content to and I want to go get a piece of content or multiple pieces of content from the VR library. So I can push a button on the controller that will basically you know, temporarily suspend the scene I'm in and transport me to another scene filled with all the content from the VR library, all spatially organized in a consistent way then I can just meander through that world, grabbing objects and adding them into kind of a temporary inventory and then go back to the other world. And now I've got those objects and I can add them to that scene. And it's just interesting kind of concept of like being able to have kind of persistent places where like the base table version of like, here's how I've organized this data in its collection but when I want to take a copy of it and add it to another collection, I can go to that, you know, canonical library and get it there. So it's, it's just kind of a, like being able to develop some spatial memory of like, where, where was that thing? And be able to go right back to it every time. It could be a lot of fun. So yeah, um, I'm not sure there's much else to talk about. Like I started working with some of the Babylon JS stuff this weekend and I've got to get some of the same things working that we're working in, in A-Frame. So um, controller events, being able to, you know, collide the controller with an object and grab it and start moving it around. And then also do, you know, 
collision and push a, a different button to do some, you know, kind of selection or activation type of triggers for, to show those kind of detail cards or to, <laughs> you know, append an item to the inventory or remove an item from the inventory, that kind of stuff. So yeah, hopefully I'll get to work on some of that in the next couple of weeks. So yeah, that's the WebXR stuff. Um, I'll have a lot more to say on FM perception throughout Dave's discussion, but the one thing I wanted to touch on outside of his discussion was we, we added a, a really basic query sandbox where you can just bring this up. It's mainly for Dave and I right now while we're building the app where you can just invoke this from anywhere in the app and be able to write custom queries that get submitted to the backend and return data directly into a table. And I had initially had just done that as a text area, um, just an HTML element, but it was, you know, sloppy and not well thought out. So Dave just said, why don't you just go find a, a component that you can use? So I did very cursory Google searching and found that there is something called the Monaco editor. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but it is basically the same editor that VS Code is based on. And it is an open source component, JavaScript component that you can use in Vue or React or just by, by itself. And basically just embed a kind of a stripped down version of VS Code style editing. And you can, you know, pass in some properties like, you know, support these languages, support this syntax, that kind of stuff. So I really like it. Like I'm going to lose a couple of months to this editor because of the things I can do with it. I've managed to resist it so far, but the first thing to mention is I fell for the, this, uh, the view version of a component again, and I need, I need to stop falling for that. So often, <laughs> often when I find something like this, somebody has made the view version of that thing, like view bootstrap in this case, uh, Monaco editor view. And it's, it's, it always, it's somebody's interpretation of the viewified version of the thing, but they're always made with that person's or organization's specific use case in mind, not mine. So in this case, it supports the basics really well, but you can't even resize the thing. I'm like, why well, I want to be able to resize it. So we have the view version in there now, but I'll probably rip it out at some point and just replace it with the regular JavaScript version or the note version and then add the, the view logic bindings onto it myself. But it's just kind of tricky. So the, the, the thing that I really like about this is I've been working on basically a sandbox site, like a sandbox subdomain on my uh, website for my side project. And when I found this editor, I thought, you know, I could actually make a little editor page in that sandbox site. And because the back is written in PHP, I could essentially write a GUI that can post the content of the document to an endpoint. That endpoint could take the incoming document, match it with a text file on that same server and replace the contents of it. And I essentially built my, I can essentially build myself an editor that I can use from anywhere, including when I'm in VR and just need to make a small change. 
I can bring up that kind of like a, a temporary editor and, but the editor can be as good as VS code in terms of, you know, formatting and indenting and all that type of stuff. Um, I haven't done this yet because that's a huge waste of my time, but when I, whenever I, they launch GitHub spaces and I see the price attached to it, I may just make my own with this. The other thing, that, along with our query editor, uh, we'll talk more about the custom queries later, but we have a database hosted on my FileMaker server full of queries. And, you know, because some of these get pretty complicated. And it occurred to me maybe Thursday or Friday, I haven't done this yet, but this may be something that we do is that we can build, we can use the data API from FileMaker and our query sandbox to be able to just pull in those queries into the sandbox as we need them. So basically just a drop down or a picker that can just, you know, we've got 500 queries or probably not 500, 100 queries in the database. And Dave needs to start working on, you know, layout objects. He's got a bunch of new things to add to layout objects. Just pull down the query for layout objects and populate it into the query sandbox and start editing it. But yeah, I haven't done that yet either. <laughs> well, the new editor is so much nicer to use than yeah. the old plain text box. Yeah, definitely. So what have you been up to? Uh, a lot. Um, what a difference a couple of weeks make. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, shortly after our last episode, I threw out the graph database. Uh, my apologies to Eden, um, who mentioned he was digging into Sparkle based upon our last episode. Uh, we're not using Sparkle anymore. Uh, so the primary reason why was RAM consumption. I mentioned memory management problems last week, and I, I generally got that stuff resolved, though I do have to say that I really really don't like .NET's garbage collection. Mm -hmm. um, it takes a kind of lazy approach to it where when you're done with a thing, it gets kind of put in a bin that may or may not get garbage collected depending upon memory pressure. And that's not when I want it to kill something. I'm like, I've got two gig of memory here that's being consumed. When I'm done with it, I want that back now. Mm -hmm. Not at some theoretical future point when you decide you can pick it up. And even manually invoking the garbage collector doesn't necessarily grab it. Yeah, and on my machine, when it, you know, cause I have much less RAM than you do, I run into this a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. um, whenever I started facing memory pressure, it wouldn't, kick off garbage collection and start reducing the memory that your app is using it just started quitting other apps on my system <laughs> <laughs> i'm i'm really glad that you got that mini with eight gig of ram because mm -hmm. i don't know if we would have spotted this in time to be able to make the conversion yeah it might have been much more damaging if we'd noticed it in three or four months yeah than now but that was the, the extra restriction there was fantastic. Yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> so I'm still seeing some memory issues after the change that you talked about, mm -hmm. but I, I, I noticed it once last week and it was during an editing session where I was basically you know closing the window and opening the one 
maybe 40 times in an hour. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think anyone besides me is ever going to do that. So <laughs> I, that is worth optimizing for. Load 40 different batches of XML in a single session. Yeah, load 40 instances of the same batch of, H- of XML. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just don't do that. Yeah, and I've, I've got some other, some leads on some other things that I can go after to try and fix some of the other problems. Um, there's some things that I was doing, like one of the things, I can't remember if I mentioned it, the bigger something is, the more likely it is to get garbage collected. So I started artificially making the objects bigger. <laughs> by appending like 100 megabyte strings to each one. Well, that code's still in there. Oh, nice. Um, Stop doing that. A, it doesn't need to be there. But B, the very fact of having destroyers attached to these objects changes the way they interact with the garbage collector. Mm. So there's just a bunch of stuff there to rip out. And I notice it about every 10th or 15th test run that I'm still seeing these deletion of 100 megabyte strings showing up in my log. But as long as they're still in the log, I'm not going to forget it forever. And it's relatively easy to remove. I just haven't done it yet. Um, The other big problem that I was having with the graph was it had this really cool system for caching queries and results. So big upside, you ask the same question a second time, you get the answer back much faster. Mm -hmm. Very cool. The downside was I couldn't actually find any way to manage that cache. Yeah. I I couldn't, there was no button that I could hit that would just wipe the entire cache because the performance of the, you know, finger quotes, slow queries was actually really high. So I didn't need any of that stuff to be cached at all, really but I couldn't make it go away. And so that RAM consumption just grew and grew and grew. Even if you just loaded one batch of XML, run 200 queries against it, and suddenly it's consuming like 15 gigabytes of RAM. And that's, that's no good. Yeah. So a couple of days after the last episode, I converted the whole thing to SQLite. Yay. <laughs> A bunch of cool stuff came out of this. Uh, First is because FM Perception Next is currently much better abstracted and separated than FM Perception Classic, I could make all these changes to the backend data store and the parsing process, but I didn't touch the API between uh, between the UI and the backend. Mm -hmm. And so all of your web code just instantaneously continued working. Mm-hmm. It just needed a different query language. Awesome. Like the query sandbox could just, at the moment I flipped that switch, I could go into the query sandbox, type a SQL query instead of a Sparkle query, get back results and it displayed in the graph mm-hmm. or in, in the chart, in the box. Grid. Grid, yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Table thingy. Rectangle thing with letters. <laughs> so, that was satisfying and personally affirming as a developer mm-hmm. that, that I had done good work in the initial architecture that I could completely rip out that layer. And that was not a trivial amount of work, but yeah. I could completely rip out that layer and replace it and everything else continued working. 
Um, awesome part number two, the query language is now SQL. Mm -hmm. So anybody who'd be interested in writing custom queries for FM perception generally already knows SQL and knows how to read an entity relationship diagram. Like I can just, I've got a big ERD that I'm working for that will, can just be documentation for developers who want to dig into that level and simultaneously for communicating with you. Mm -hmm. Like I can just hand you this ERD and go, here's all the tables. There's a whole bunch of fields. And you look at it and you go, I see how this works. I mean, I understand everything that's being stored in particular tables, but I, I get how these things interact. Mm -hmm. And that's fantastic. It's just easier to document and communicate about in general. Um, the SQL stuff appears to be faster. Yeah. Both in the initial parse and even the queries themselves. The RAM requirement is lower. Not like a tenth or anything, but it is lower. Yeah, on my side, the initial parsing slash creating, like I sent Dave a message, like, why is this so much faster? And he's like, what are you talking about? But from on my machine with the M1 Mac mini, the Sparkle version took about eight to 10 seconds every time I loaded our sample system. And it takes about a hundred milliseconds every time I load the SQLite version. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't end up seeing that because all of this code is dramatically faster in the release version, mm -hmm. but not as much faster in the developer version that has all the debug code in it. Yeah. So. Yeah, and Dave speculated it might be, you know, SQL Lite, the, the version that he's targeting against might have already been optimized for the M1 Max as well, since you had to update all your build tools to use that version. Yeah, I, I actually tested it uh, using the release version on my machine. And yeah, it's really fast. It's, but the, the thing I like about it the best is that I can write SQL queries. <laughs> like I don't have to, like with FM comparison, I basically had to shout over a GitHub comment every time I needed something. <laughs> like, no, send me this property. And now I can just type that into a box and hit send and get it back. I really like it. Yeah, I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about the nature of the way the API has changed between the front end and the back end between this app and FM comparison. Mm -hmm. And to a certain degree, why? Like we were figuring out how to communicate and um, I had already built some stuff for FM comparison. Mm -hmm. And so you just kind of integrated into that flow and there were maybe some core assumptions there that we should have re-examined. Um, it's fast enough that I'm tempted at some point, and this will not be before 1.0 release, but at some point to actually go back and, and potentially SQL Lite-ify FM comparison. Yeah, even if you don't do the entire app, I was gonna ask if you might consider doing that to all of the data that I'm persisting. Because mm. there's been, the settings and advanced configuration data that the tricky part about those features is trying to keep us both in working versions that can access the same data where Dave can, I'm architecting the data, but Dave has to create it and persist it, but then I'm the one using it. It would be a lot better if you just gave me a 
advanced configuration table that I can create records in and get records back with that same kind of pipeline that we have in FM Perception. Yeah. Another cool thing that we got out of that was it was really dirt simple to write some code that just dumps all the data out into separate files. Yeah. Nice, clean CSVs with column headers. Like it's, it's 30 lines of code to do all the tables. Yeah. And I ran that and I thought, surely Dave is a compassionate man who is going to create a folder at the destination location and then put all the files inside of it. No, he's not. He's a, a ruthless monster who just dumped all of the files into the location. It, I said, where do you want the files? And you said this folder. So I put them in that folder, not automatically creating another folder. I, come on, Joe. Monster. <laughs> um, but even on a pretty big system, that CSV dump takes like two seconds mm -hmm. for 45 megabytes of text in yeah. this particular test that I did. Um, I mean, that's not everything. It's going to get much larger and more complicated as I get down into, you know, parsing script steps is going to get a lot more data than it's currently got. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so that's really cool. And we'll make a neat thing for like, I, I, it's one of those FM perception feature requests that pops up once or twice a year is I can export any list as CSV, but can I just export all the lists? Just one button press, just give me all the raw data because I want to do something with it. And I don't want to keep asking for these every time. Yeah. Well, that's already in the test space we're working on because we want it for our own uses. Mm -hmm. um, and the other cool part of the process was that going down the graph path, like all that time wasn't wasted because I learned a ton about parallel and asynchronous programming while doing that. And so even though I didn't reuse a lot of the code, I reused a bunch of the lessons mm -hmm. um, to make the thing clean, fast, run well, no matter how, this, how many cores you've got, that kind of thing, you know, it, what, none of it feels wasted. It, it felt a little wasted while I was rewriting the parsing code. But once I got past it, I was just like, this wouldn't have ended up as good if I had been trying to do it straight into SQLite the first time. Mm -hmm. So all the tables for the basic elements are there. You know, your, your tables, your fields, your scripts, your script steps, stuff like that. And so now it's a lot of the detail tables, you know, script triggers and, and stuff like that. And figuring out what we want to have for naming conventions, for tables and fields. And then started digging into the references, which are a horrifying nightmare. <laughs> We've got references out and references in. We've got broken references. Uh, last night in my sleep deprived state, I started thinking about references that matter versus references that don't matter. Mm -hmm. Like technically a privilege set references extended privileges. 
Yeah. And inversely, the extended privileges actually reference privilege sets. But just because a privilege set is referenced by an extended privilege doesn't mean that it's referenced. Like, it, it, it doesn't mean that this isn't a that this is something that we couldn't just delete without causing problems in the system. Mm -hmm. You know, if the only reference to a privilege set is the fact that it's connected to extended privileges, that doesn't count. <laughs> yeah. still, if it has no, if it has no accounts tied to it, it's it, deletable. Yeah. So it sounds like I would record the references, but maybe we need a, a type field indicates maybe like a safety field, um, whatever we call it, but something that can that we can filter on at a global scope. We've got this kind of loosely defined feature of you know, app-wide or system-wide filters, and maybe one of those needs to be, you know, whatever that distinction means, references that matter versus like critical references. Like um, almost thinking about it, like what will FileMaker clean up if you delete this, is it going to leave other things in a broken state if you delete this or not? Mm -hmm. And being able to have a checkbox and say, just show me the things that FileMaker's not going to clean up when I delete this. One of the complaints that I've gotten a couple of times about the way FM perception perceives referenced objects or unreferenced objects more specifically is in FM perception, if a field is on a layout, that field is referenced. Mm -hmm. Just the act of putting it on a layout qualifies as a reference because it is. But there's a lot of developers who don't think that way. Yeah. As long as there are no scripts that talk to it and it's not on any of my important layouts, I don't care. Mm -hmm. Delete the field. Um, so yeah, there's, I, I got to do a little more thinking, probably a little more conversation with you to nail down how we want to do that, how we want to, grade or categorize these yeah. references and whether that's something that we want to allow people to toggle if not yes. toggle at least customize like that specific example you just gave where i don't care if it's on one of these admin layouts but i do care if it's on one of my main layouts so let the mm. user extend the query for that and just mm. manually exclude the specific table ids that they're talking about oh wow mm. Just send them. A See, this, this is why this is why I didn't start working on it. I didn't add a field to the table. I was I made myself a note. I need to talk to Joe about this, and we'll we'll figure out how we want to tackle it. Mm -hmm. um, most recently, I added uh, there was a chunk of post processing that I needed to do things that um, I needed to do after everything had been loaded. Mm -hmm. An example would be if I want to tag completely unreferenced objects, just so I don't have to calculate it every time, you know, the, between the moment of load and two hours later within the XML, whether something is referenced or not is not going to change, mm -hmm. but I can't do that until all the data has been loaded. Yeah. So after the data is all loaded, I have to run a series of queries update queries to tag things in the database based upon all of that data. And I was, I was worried because it's a bunch of queries that I'm going to have to run. They all toggle one or two fields. And so I built it 
and it just feeds a whole list of SQL queries into the system. And right now it's, it's currently doing about a half a dozen queries, but that's updating tens of thousands of records. Mm -hmm. And right now on a large system, it's about a 10th of a second. <laughs> on a reasonably sized system, it's about a hundredth of a second. Nice. Now, eventually I'm going to have 50 to hundred queries in there with all the different things I have to update. But it was, it was kind of a deja vu experience. Like when I first did my very initial XML loads in Swift for the first FM perception is it was so fast. I couldn't believe it had done any work. Yeah. Running half a dozen updates across tens of thousands of records. And it comes back with 10 milliseconds. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> you didn't actually do it. You just, you ran the queries and the queries all found no records and it didn't do anything, right? And you dump all the data out to CSV and everything's toggled properly. You're like, oh my gosh. So, and that in there ties into kind of the last big advantage so far for SQL is it's just easier to visualize the data and see gaps. Like getting these clean table exports, I can just bring that up in FileMaker run a find on a particular column for the equals character and all my blanks show up. I'm like, these should be, these shouldn't be, that kind of thing. I'm, as a longtime FileMaker developer, I'm used to being able to see the data mm -hmm. in a very easy to interact with way and having SQL tables is making that easier. So just the whole development is moving much faster now. It all fits more closely to my internal mental models of code and my experience from years of doing this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so I'm sure the rapid change rate is making your life just wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit to keep up with, but there's a, the front end of the app. I'm working on so many little things so many, so many huge things a little bit at a time because they're all dependent on one another. So yeah, it's been some days it's like, did I make any progress today? Like I, I moved like an inch on 10 different paths, but yeah, it's weird. Basically I need to, I don't even know. There's too much. <laughs> I, I no longer keep it in my head. I keep it in a text file. There's a, just a whole bunch of features that are completely dependent on one another, at least the basics of them that have to be up and working, but each of them has their own set of complexity and they're all completely different problem spaces. Some of them are UI things, some of them are state management things, some of them are data structure things. So like the query sandbox was my like, I need a small victory to keep myself going. So It was a definite victory. So awesome. yeah, we've got a lot to work on. Mm -hmm. This app will be done anytime between and. <laughs> Last time I was talking to somebody about, about it, I said sometime between three months and two years from now. Yeah. I, and I right this second cannot predict which end of that range is more likely. Yeah. I, my theory is that with 
Dave giving me access to the queries. So this is the weird part. I'm basically a front-end developer on this project, but I'm writing SQL queries in JavaScript and then just pushing them into an API and getting results back. That's not how front-end development works. <laughs> like if, if you just had text fields on a website where you could write SQL queries, that would be very, very, very bad for that organization. <laughs> yeah. The, the other really nice thing about me is in FM comparison, I did a lot of work swizzling data to get it into the right format to hand to you. Mm -hmm. And some of that involved even like building little strings of HTML so that when you would get it, you could do something, you could throw it on a layout and display it. And all of that work has been pushed into your lap. Mm -hmm. I have to <clears throat> capture the actual raw data in its raw form, but it has to be complete. Yeah. Yeah, so I was theorizing that because I've got access to the, the SQL stuff on my side, it is theoretically possible for Dave to finish his part of the project months or years before the front end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because when I'm done parsing and then dealing with settings, I'm done. Mm -hmm. There's well, nothing more for me to do aside from functioning in a, an advisory capacity Yeah, like I'll, while you're building the UI. Like I'll have questions, like opinionated questions about each layout. So there'll be a lot yeah. of that back and forth, but it won't necessarily involve writing code to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah, very extremely different project mm -hmm. from FM Comparison. So a quick side topic, um, AR headsets. Mm -hmm. I think we are, this is the year of the AR headsets. Mainly yeah. I'm using that off of CES was last week, Consumer Electronics Show. And I didn't follow it very closely, but I saw a lot of tweets and news articles throughout the week about different AR headsets. And a lot of them are coming pretty fast. None of them look mind-blowing, um, but it reminded me of kind of that slide from the original iPhone keynote of like, here are the smartphones now. It feels like here are the AR headset that Apple will make fun of when they introduce their AR headsets. <laughs> Not to disparage any of these, but a lot of them are just trying really weird, wacky things. Mm. One of them in particular sounded interesting to me. It is not a mind-blowing thing, but I, I joked around that I want a hollow lens without a hollow lens inside. I just want the AR glasses version of hollow lens that I can plug into my computer without the compute unit in the hollow lens. And Lenovo essentially is making that. It's called the Think Reality. I'm not sure if it's a Think Reality 3. Or the first one with Think Reality 6 because they don't know how numbers work, but <laughs> um, maybe they're having a countdown. I don't know. But basically, you can plug this into a Motorola smartphone or a Windows computer and use up to five virtual spaces, basically just virtual desktops at once, but also do some 3D objects in space. It looks pretty cool. They, they're marketing it as an enterprise device. They did not release a price. Like if it's, if it's under $500, I'll get it. No brainer. Like just absolutely must have. If it's over that, I'll have a hard time justifying it. Um, but it would be really cool to write code with that. And that kind of form factor makes laptops way more appealing 
because mm. the worst thing about working on a laptop is looking down all day. But when you can mm. just look up and have as many virtual displays around you as you want, but still have the laptop and the main display when you're not wearing your glasses, that is a really interesting thing. But I think in the grand scheme of AR, th these are like mildly interesting blips before whatever form factor actually wins out. But interesting. I haven't bought anything yet. There's nothing to buy yet, but could be some good stuff coming.